Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. Today is the big reveal for the great grilling mitt and potholder contest. Our judge, Susan Strawn, visits with me about the history, culture, and wider resonances of the folk object that we all have in our kitchens. Utilitarian piece of cloth that protects our hands, insulates our hearts, and shows our true faces to the world. Hello, Susan. Hello, Mary. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Okay, so you know a lot about potholders, and I'd like to just start with the history. Now, I started thinking about this, and I thought, potholders must have had a renaissance, had a initiation somewhere along the line, because I remember growing up with my grandmother, and she just took the end of her apron and grabbed the uh, roast out of the oven. I don't remember any potholders in her house whatsoever, but then in my mo- my mother and her generation, she had she had mitts. We had a lot of mitts, and um, <laughs> and then as I got older, I found that people had these beautiful potholders that were embroidered or you know quilted. And then my brother and I, we we were like a little factory. We got into the loopy loop potholders with the looms. I mean, we must have made. 100, 200 of those loom potholders. So tell us how potholders have evolved through the ages. Oh, gosh. Well, actually, I could just tell you to wait for the book that I'm working on because it really does deserve a whole book. But you're right. I mean, for the most part, people just use the corner of an apron, you know, or something. And back when you think about it, they used to cook on, you know, in a pot that was on a thing that swung over and it just heated up the pot. And so they'd use like wooden tools or something. They didn't really need them that much. You know, they weren't touching it. So that's not a problem. But that said, I found that uh, there are museums that have potholders that are quite old in the um, uh, online exhibit about the history. Let's see, what was the date on that? It's a uh, Going back to, um, let's see, at the Smithsonian's uh, National Museum of American History has a potholder they date to 1835. And this was another one, kind of like samplers, where it demonstrates the needlework ability of the person. So there's that. And then there's the wonderful potholders that had messages from the Civil War era. Um, They read any holder but a slaveholder. And they were made by women in the sanitary fairs and sold to support the soldiers in the North. Yeah. So there's a real interesting older history there. 
but really they get started as part of folklore kind of around the turn of the 20th century when you start seeing these kind of simple muslin, cotton muslin potholders with little sayings on them like, hot pot, I feel you not, or when pots are hot, forget me not, that sort of thing, or little, little images, you know, but very simple, very plain. And then in the 19, you know, you think about World War One and potholders, you know, they follow along as, as, as people's lives change and as demographics change and as marketing changes, potholders reflect that. The potholders kind of hold up a mirror to society. Um, so the next thing you see is after World War I, when more people are moving into little houses, smaller houses, bungalows and so on, and they have fewer servants. And so the woman of the house is probably in the kitchen doing her own cooking. And so the potholders, I think, were more colorful and they were, became decor, kitchen decor. And uh, what I find then in my collection is that there are, I have dozens, maybe 50 potholders that are human faces. And it's almost like she needed, the cook needed some company in the kitchen, so she made these little potholders to hang up and keep her company. So there's that. But then, um, so those are mostly embroidered. Huh. And, and would it be embroidered by the woman that was cooking in the kitchen? Oh, yeah, yeah. So there were patterns and kits. And if they couldn't get enough of making these, they could do potholder holders. These were holders for the potholders, so they were... A holder, and these were stamped well, and stenciled. What a holder for a potholder look like? Well, it could look like a dog. <laughs> it could look like women in ball gowns. I mean, these people were very creative. And so anyway, and sometimes, like especially getting into the 30s, they would piece fabric, and it looks very much like those beautiful quilts of the 1930s, so quilters were making those, they became more colorful. And then, of course, the looper, potholders, those go back to, yeah, the industrial manufacture of uh, socks and the so of stockings, yeah, that they would cut the, the tops the, off of them and they'd be little knit loops. And those were going to waste until somebody figured out that they, if they packaged them with a portable loom, they could sell them to these Depression-era housewives and they would weave them into the looper potholders that we all know and love. And or kids. One of our, one of our entries, um, Rip Russell, has a wonderful little story how he used to visit his grandparents, and he and his grandmother would make potholders. That was their activity together. It was wonderful. So by the 1950s, it was a child's toy. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. That's how that's how my brother and I became a factory. Okay, yep. I get it. Yep. So that's kind of happened there. So then you get on to post-World War II and you have all these thread and yarn manufacturers who want to sell more cotton thread and yarn. And so they start cranking out all these pattern books for patterns to crochet, occasionally knit, but mostly crochet. Anything you can think of, people, houses, watermelons, anything you can think of. I mean, they just had a field day with this little dresses, you know, the his and hers, ma and pa underwear, that sort of thing. Anything you can think of. So potholders moved from a piece of folklore, folk art, to capitalism. Yep. 
and they're selling them. People are having fun with it. So, you know, whatever. But what's really I found interesting is that the way the history um, reflects society is that at the time, the only genders represented male and female. Aha. Real different from today when people are choosing their pronouns and so on. But that was it. Some of them moved into kind of representing immigrant groups. Sometimes there were, they'd crochet little, I don't know, Swedish flags, or they'd embroider a little Dutch girl with her cap onto the potholders, and you'd find that. And other times, the images, uh, say, of Asians or uh, African Americans are um, just so derogatory that today we cringe when we look at them. But at the time, people thought they were kind of cute and they didn't think anything of it. And what's interesting is that there's kind of a deep history to this. Uh, Henry Louis Gates, uh, the historian, um, writes about how so many of the what is now considered black memorabilia coming out of the Jim Crow era, he writes about how so many of these were for the kitchen because that was considered the appropriate place for African-Americans in Jim Crow America. They should be servants. So they are cookie jars. They are potholders. And in the uh, online exhibit, I put up the two, two images of the least shocking African-American representation, representing um, uh, potholders. Oh, wow. And so this exhibit is going to be on the Ag Arts website agarts.org, and Susan has curated it. Actually, there's two exhibits. One is an exhibit of the entries into the contest, and the second exhibit is her own potholder collection. I've really, it, it's just, it blew my mind uh, going through the slideshow of these because, well, they're just miniature, miniature everything, miniature slices of our life, miniature textile designs, miniature, as you say, uh, reflections of our biases and prejudices. Um, they're even miniature provocative uh, potholders. You want to talk about those? I think they're very provocative. Many of them are. I think that looking at issues of gender and race and culture, it's very provocative. Um, and there, I do have several examples of provocative potholders um, that I think probably enlivened um, maybe engagement parties or something because they would have male and female, you know, trousers or skirts or aprons. And if you lifted them up, there were little suggestive bits that were under the... <laughs> So there, you know, people had a lot of fun with it. And um, yeah, so I, I, the other thing I put in the exhibit is the, the potholder pattern that I think is the most ubiquitous. And that is da, da, da. the ear of corn <laughs> potholder. And I have found that back as far as the 1890s in pattern books. And it has a cleverly knitted ridges that somebody, it was a traditional tea kettle, and somebody looked at it and thought, you know, if we made these yellow, made them vertical, and made a little smaller and opened on one side, you know, this just looks like an ear of corn if you put a green tassel on this. And I have bought those as recently as like four or five years ago in the Amana colony, still being knitted. 
I just think they're great fun, knitted or crocheted. And, you know, today, pot holders are kind of high-tech. A lot of them are, you know, very much. with. The, but at the same time, you can find souvenir pot holders that are by the Hmong people. I found pot holders made in these wonderful Hmong techniques at the Des Moines uh, Farmer's Market. And I found um, Nordic knitted pot holders. And I've found... Um, um, other kinds of very artistic, very clever pot holders that are handmade. Where do you find them besides the farmer's market? Or where, where else do you look f for your collection? I tell, I tell people that this is like folklore land here. but It is. And this is part of folklore. I absolutely agree with you about that. It's a material culture of folklore. It's very important. And... Um, I got started because my grandmother, who was a Danish immigrant, gave me a hope chest when I was a young girl. And in, those, in there, I found these beautiful hand-crocheted potholders, part of what she thought I would need for my elegant adult life, you know. And I was working at Interweave Press, and their piecework magazine had an issue about everyday textiles. And I thought I was ah, absolutely chomping at the bit wanting to write. I was the staff artist, but you know, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to write. And so I wrote an article about those potholders. It was my very first publication for them. And after that, I thought, you know, there really is a lot to this. And so flea markets, antique malls, I would just pick these up. They were inexpensive. They were easy to store. And then I found that there was a lot of history in them. And I got much more interested. Well, then people knew I collected, so they started sending me these things. So I have hundreds now. And then when I lived in Ames, I had a good friend there who she and I liked to go out junking, as we called it. And it's like a mini vacation from all the head work, you know, you're doing on a degree, and we just go wherever, you know, antique malls, um, uh, flea markets, whatever, and you'd, you know, you'd have these finds of potholders, and yeah. <laughs> Eventually, it's like, I don't know, six or seven hundred of them now, I mean, I... Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have six or seven hundred potholders? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. I've got a lot of loopers. <laughs> well, just wait. There'll be uh, Buggy Land listeners that'll start sending you potholders, I'm sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's, 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 it's been pretty fun. And then with the ones I find that are that I really find offensive, I, I really, you know, the, the racial slurs and so on, I, I feel like I'm rescuing them, you know? And there's a, a Jim Crow museum that I plan to donate them to um, after, after I do the book, after the book is final. So it, it, it is another piece of history. They took my breath away when I saw them too. And then I thought, you know, this is how people used to treat other people. It's a documentation of racism. And well, and you know, what I think is so special about potholders is that they are so ordinary. They're so everyday that nobody thinks about the message that's in them. They don't think about it. And I think some of this is before, it was going on before we even had the words. 
You know, like we didn't have the words for all the different gender definitions and so on that we have. They just didn't have those back in the 50s. So you got ma and pa. (laughs) That's about it, you know. And and they didn't, we didn't have thoughtful, considerate words regarding race. So this even precedes when we were able, when people were able to talk about this in a sensitive way. Well, not only were there African-Americans in your collection, but Asians, their Asian racism was... uh, Pretty bad too. It is absolutely, and uh, yeah, it's it's. So as I said, I, I feel like I'm rescuing them and keeping them in a safe place where they will be interpreted appropriately. What about our contestants, our entries into the great grilling mitt and potholder contest? Can you? I want you to save the winner for the end, but can you uh, build up? To that, um, talking about some of the entries, we're you know we don't have a photo in front of us because we're on audio, but we will have a slideshow of these beautiful entries on the website. So, can you talk about some of the uh, entries that we received and the ones that really struck you? Oh yes, well every single one I thought was wonderful because especially the stories that were sent with the potholders, the meaning that was held in the potholders just touched me deeply. Right. We had, we had people send a photo of their favorite potholder and then get on the website where we have a button where they can speak for 45 seconds and then it cuts them off. And, and people, people manage that really, really, really well. It was oh, it was it was just brilliant. I couldn't believe it as we as these were coming in. It was um, so we did get several loopers, and um, I had printed these out. Uh, Bonnie Hanlon actually wrote a poem, a wonderful poem. Look for that about uh, the history of the looper potholders. A very good poem, and then um, Rip Russell wrote about the potholders that he made with his nana when he was a boy sent a beautiful photo of that and he'd apparently he'd started making them again so he he took up uh he, he's a theater artist and all the theaters shut down including the he he's one of my actors for um my theater troupe that was moving around and so he was out of work there for quite a while and he took up other arts all of a sudden he started making potholders he's he started uh, doing these paint pours, and now he's selling his art. I mean, it didn't take him long to get into museums with his potholders and his painting. It, it's oh it, it's amazing. And uh, several others that were so artistic, like um, Kathy Linker LaFrance made a potholder she called Let It All Hang Out. It was laundry on a clothesline, and she made it from a pair of old blue jeans that were too worn out. So that was really clever. And then talking about the pandemic and making potholders at that time, uh, Jean Graham um, who's just an overachiever after my own heart here, <laughs> sent in like eight of these. And one of them said, you know, so they each had a little slogan on them. And one of them was, I survived 2020. <laughs> you know? So all handmade, made from um, uh, fabric that she had on hand. Um, 
Jane uh, Yodershort sent these lovely pieced in the tradition of um, Amish quilting, although she told me they are not Amish or Mennonite. They're just a friend of hers made them, but lovely pieced, very nicely done. Uh, Monica Leo sent a potholder that's an alligator that's a puppet. She is uh, of the puppet theater, uh, puppet master, which was pretty fun. Too, right? And a devil sent, given to her by her, her um, a former uh, friend of hers. Oh, there was another looper that was made from the um, made in the Amana colonies, and another myth that was the fish myth. Uh, there were crocheted, there was mom's crocheted potholder from Kate Sunwood. And Ardeth Gillespie also had potholders her mother had made for her. And then we had embroidered potholders from uh, Mary Neville. And uh, just see if I missed any, anyone here, I didn't name all the names. Barbara Morrison went with a group of friends and found this potholder. So the memory of this lovely day is in the potholder. And the fish mitt, that was um, Ken uh, Balaf, and his sister gave that to him for his camping trips. There's a great picture of him holding the fish. It's just great, and it'll be in the exhibit. Can I go ahead and say who my first place winner was? Oh, absolutely. We are now hearing the great, the winner of the great grilling mitt and potholder contest. I I hate this part. Because just honestly, I 10 minutes ago, I decided on the second and third place winners, and now I'm debating <laughs> what I'm going to do. They're just so wonderful. But anyway, my first place winner had to be Jean Graham, because as I said, I'm kind of a sucker for an overachiever, having you know been fond of overachievers when I was a professor. But she just had everything. It was she was on message in terms of agard. She's um, the craftsmanship was superior. There was a visual appeal. Um, she had stories for every potholder. Uh, the relevance to ag arts was just perfect. And she even used words that had to do with food. Like she says, I'm going to be gluttonous and send in eight of these. You know, so it was just kind of everything. And also, I thought her potholders just exemplified all the reasons that people make potholders. And she made them as gifts. She was another pandemic potholder uh, yeah. uh, maker, yeah, and 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 I got um, many of those. She sent me some of those potholders. Uh, the next year, and we're still in the pandemic. I got two more, so that was really <laughs> a bonus. <laughs> Lucky you. Um, it's just you know this was a creative outlet for her. And that was another really important reason that people made potholders. I mean, they made them for all kinds of reasons. They made them, and especially when they were marketed, all those patterns were marketed to people as creative outlets, as, as um, gifts, as appropriate for gifts, and also, you know, kind of contemporary messages, and they'd use them to cope with stress. I mean, just all the reasons that, pe and also using up materials that people had on hand. It does. That's the nice thing about potholders. You just have to have a little bit of every bit of material, and you can make something useful. And they're useful, and yet they're still very much, you know, made by an artist. So I just thought jeans had everything <laughs> in it, and I think I'm sure that. She has connections with people, as you've just demonstrated, by giving them as gifts. But there were others that were um, 
just so touching because of the connection uh, with other people like Barbara Morrison's friends, friends who went to Amana together to celebrate birthdays. And there's that memory in the potholder. And sometimes there was a special parent or grandparent like Kate Sunwood with her mother and Artie Gillespie with her mother. And of course, Nana, <laughs> you know, that one was just, just marvelous. Or like a, a close friend and colleague like Mar- Monica Leo's devil potholder. Right. And uh, then Mary Neville. Um, but the one that touched me, and I'm just going with my gut here, and that was Mary Neville and the my mother's embroidered potholders. Oh, weren't those beautiful? I mean... The fact that she's using them, and what she said was, her handwork brings comfort to me. Can you describe those potholders a little bit? Yes, they are um, just simple... Uh, kind of a, a muslin background, and then they're embroidered, you know, with kitchen scenes on them. And but they're they're worn, and there are stains on them. And she said, "I use them." And what's amazing about potholders in my collection is that thousands of these things were saved and never used. You know, they wanted to keep them special, and she used them because it brings her mother close to her. So every day. When she's using these, she thinks about her mother. So I just decided that the emotional, that strong emotional connection. So so Mary Neville's second prize, okay. Could have been any of the others. And I just, you know, I was going here and I'm thinking, oh no, it's it's got to be Nana. Maybe I'll change that, you know, <laughs> just... It could have been Nana. That was that. I almost changed it to Nana as we were talking, <laughs> and then I had to remember just how strongly I reacted to that. I was so touched by that, and just even the image of them. That patina of use is so special because usually those are thrown away. You know, if you have them, like somebody buys them at an estate sale and then they go into a flea market or an antique mall, they want the ones that are pretty and nice and you could hang up. And these are just so personal. No, that's why when those came in, I was like, oh, would you look at this? You can see the wear and the use in these. And it did. It gave me the connection of through the generations with those. Yes, yes. That's important, too, through the generations. And I think a lot of those loopers, I was amazed how many of the looper potholders were saved. And a lot of them, they weren't especially artistic. (laughs) They were just looper potholders. And I've got dozens of those things that ended up in flea markets and the antiques mall. But you think that was, that might have been somebody's child or grandchild and their first little weaving. And you just didn't want to part with that until eventually households have to be cleared and that stuff goes out somewhere else. So anyway, so then, so those are kind of two really important categories. And then, um, the next one, I, the third one then, I just looked at the sense of whimsy that I think is so wonderful in potholders. And you had, you know, the, the, the poem regarding loopers, I thought was, you know, had a sense of whimsy to it, coming up with something that was literary, actually. The let it all hang out potholder from the Warren Jeans. That was very whimsical, very, very nice. And the way she wrote about it was very nice too. And then those lovely uh, quilted potholders, they, the way that they arranged the fabric was actually quite whimsical. And the alligator mitt, the fish mitt, 
I mean, they're just wonderful. And the alligator mitt, the way that the fabric is laid out, there's like a flower that's the eye. And oh, and it was a guy. I, I thought it was cool that we got entries from women that I expected, but we also yeah. got entries from men. And I thought, okay, this is cool. This is reaching out. I, any of those, as I said, I agonized over this. I showed the slideshow to friends and asked them what they thought. I mean, I just hate it. But anyway, so the third one I really had to go with was the um, I'm the boss mitt. Oh, that's great. It, that I'd forgotten about that one. Can you um, describe I'm the boss mitt? Yes. And this is um, um, a commercial mitt, a manufactured mitt. And it shows a woman, she described her as a very I forget what she said, a happy woman or a, cheer, oh, a cheerful woman in overalls. And she's throwing chicken feet out or something like that. And, and it says, I'm not bossy, I'm the boss. Well, there's your gender role uh, business again. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. And I need to get... That's Alita Murphy. Alita Murphy. Okay, okay, someone I don't know, so I didn't remember her name. But she said uh, she thought it captured the spirit of ag arts, and I agree with that. And she said she just loves it. And she said, and it's well used. And so this one also had a little bit of that to it. So I just had to go with that one for third place. But again, it's like, by a nose, folks. This was, you made it so hard for me, all you entries. We have prizes for the winners. The first place gets $100. And yeah. the second and third place, they get their choice of a um, membership to their state Farmers Union or to Practical Farmers of Iowa, which, which have a huge network. They have their own premiums. I, I, get, I reserve all my motel rooms um, through Iowa Farmers Union because there's such a good discount. So there's discounts, premiums, really useful websites with both organizations. So um, take full advantage of that. Iowa Farmers Union has a, um, my favorite thing that they do is a lunch and learn. So every Thursday at 1230, they have a guest on who's an expert, really inter has interesting, interesting information, various aspects of agriculture. It's just a half an hour interview. It's always informative. It's always fun. So winners, get going on your memberships and Jean, go on a big splurge with, with your $100. So thank you so much for judging this contest and for making these wonderful slideshows. Susan Strawn, our judge for the great grilling mitt and potholder contest and winners have fun and listeners get on our website and, uh, We'll get those um, slideshows up so you can have uh, a look at all the different aspects and venues for these potholders and people's venues for people's creativity that went into the potholders. All right, thank you so much, Susan. Oh, thank you so much. This was really fun. You can see a beautiful exhibit of Susan Strawn's Potholder Collection 
on our website, agarts.org. And just below that slideshow, we've posted another exhibit of your potholder submissions with the winners. So join us at eggarts.org for our potholder exhibitions. Two, I'm now part of the Iowa Writers Collective, joining the ranks of Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Julie Gamak, Bob Leonard, and Laura Balin. I have created a Substack page where you will get transcriptions of Buggy Land monologues and interviews, photos, and all sorts of extra commentaries and additions. Please subscribe at maryswander.substack.com. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Free Martintown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Brouhaha. Da, 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 da.